This week on Out Now with Aaron and Abe, we're talking Mank. I don't hear your typewriter typing, Aaron. Wait a minute, I forgot my introduction. We are now recording, and this is Out Now with Aaron and Abe. I am Aaron, and as always, this is... Abe, hello! Hi! Hi! Out Now is a film podcast where Abe and I discuss new movies weekly. We dig into movies via motion spoiler for your review, the occasional commentary track, or some other fun movie topic. This is episode 429! 429! Yeah, 429. This is is the more advanced 409 formula. (laughs) Yeah, 429. Yeah. Exactly. It's, it's only available to the insiders. The, the floors are so clean, you can you can eat off the chairs that are laid on well, the floors. Well, it, it kind of is very caustic. It'll burn a hole through the floor. I feel like I should mute myself to keep from uh, groaning. <laughs> what, what no, we want those we want those added sound effects. What, what Abe is saying is that you use xenomorph blood to eat off the floors. <laughs> It just makes sense. Um, all right, let's move on from this nonsense. Let's get to what we're talking about. This week for episode 429, we're talking Mank. There's no exclamation point, but I just want to say it like there is one. Mank! That's the episode okay. this week. David Fincher's newest film. Uh, we're going to go all over that. And joining us to discuss Mank, we have from Battleship Retention and the More Than One Lesson podcast and the director of Real Redemption. He's on the search for one of his lost giraffes from his backyard zoo. It's Tyler Smith. Hello. Thanks for having me. First of all, Tyler, you have a backyard zoo? Uh, I mean, I have a backyard, and there are, there is occasionally a uh, like a possum or a raccoon that wanders <laughs> into it. So kinda. Okay. And there is a there is a stray cat that we feed that we've named Moonshadow, but uh, that's about it. Oh, Moonshadow, that's a yeah. cool name. Thank you. It wasn't mine, unfortunately. Well, very cool. <laughs> Moonshadow is a it's a I like that song. That's it's, an old, it, yeah, that song in that, a while. That cat transforms into a superhero at nights. Also, also possible. Tyler, good to have you back here. Hello, Tyler. Oh, it's it's good to be back. Yeah, no, always always glad to have have you. Have, basically, it's always happy, happy to have one of the the members of the Battleship Retention family on this podcast. That's what I would think. So happy to have you aboard. See see what I did there? I, I said aboard. That's that's the thing. Right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We can keep going. <laughs> Let's set sail. The, the, I'm neglecting my kids and my wife for this. It's it's great we're making you immediately regret this decision to be on this show. That's that's yeah. the, that's the key in all this. But <laughs> all right, let's get let's get to some show notes. Um, first, Aye, Captain. First up, um, I didn't see that coming. That got me. Um, all right, uh, new commentary track. We do one every month. They're always a lot of fun. We did one for Unstoppable this month. Tony Scott's Unstoppable. Mm-hmm. That's up available now on iTunes. You can find that. You can listen to all that. Good conversation we had there. We have another one coming in December. We have some ideas. There was going to be a very cool one for a very big movie that was coming out, but that shifted. So now we got to uh, kind of re-shift some ideas. But there there will be a fun commentary track coming. That's a big tease for next October, apparently. Mm-hmm. Um, so with that out of the way, speaking of our commentary tracks, they're on iTunes. You can find all of our shows on iTunes, and you can go go over there and give us a rating and review. That'd be uh, that'd be great. This is all the five stars. Thank you. Yeah. And uh, just a, just an idea for some upcoming show plans. We know there's a lot of movies coming out in various services or what have you. Uh, we'll just keep in mind right now that obviously some big movies are coming out at the end of the month, like Soul and Wonder Woman 1984. There's also a lot of smaller movies coming out. Currently, we're thinking we're talking Sound of Metal, which is up on Prime now uh, right. next week, along with possibly Nomadland 
And I'm also, I just want to throw this out there too, just so listeners can also kind of keep this in mind. It's, uh, Steve McQueen's Small Axe series of films. Uh, we plan to talk about those in one episode eventually. There's like five of those films. It's currently three of like debuted so far. So once it gets to the end, uh, we do want to like have a chance to talk about, you know, those films for an episode of the show. So if you, you know, want to hear more about that or want to just know what that is, uh, go check it out on iTunes. Or I'm sorry, on iTunes, on Amazon Prime. That's uh, mm-hmm. uh, so far a, a very worthwhile series to be checking out. Um, all right. So that's out of the way. Let's move on now. Let's get to... Um, Let's get to uh, our favorite segment here. What we would have talked about this week were things not to have changed for reasons that have once again held us back from having more good things in life. Uh, this is where we go over one of the films that would have come out originally this week in this post-Bloodshot era where things not to have changed due to the pandemic that's currently continuing on in uh, our society. Uh, this week, not a lot was originally going to come out because it's <laughs> post-Thanksgiving, which you don't tend to get any big movies following that because you generally have the leftovers from thanksgiving uh but there was a movie that i didn't talk about last week so i wanted to save something for this week uh, it is called voyagers I'll, I'll i'll describe the premise for you guys and just tell me if you're interested there's been no trailers or anything like that so far i don't even know if it got made i <laughs> i know it was supposed to come out uh but it's from director neil Berger, who did a uh, limitless dive in divergent and uh-huh. the illusionist among other things it stars colin farrell ty sheridan lily rose depp and Finn Whithead, Whitehead, the uh, the guy from uh, Dunkirk, the main the main guy in that movie. This premise oh, is Finn. Yeah, F- Finn. Is it Finn? Yes. I kind of like mumbled through it. <laughs> yeah, I was like Jin. I was like, is he Asian? I didn't say Jin. I said Finn. Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> Regardless, the premise: a crew of astronauts on a multi generational mission descend into paranoia and madness, not knowing what is real or not. Hmm. Now I've just given you a lot of information. Does that, mm-hmm. Tyler, does that sound interesting to you? Eh. <laughs> I mean, it's, you know, that's fine. It's, uh, not particularly, no. Hey, how about you? Are you at all interested in the, this? Strangely, I got to the eh when you told me the plot of the movie. Uh-huh. And when you were telling me the director and the actors that are involved, I was like, oh, this kind of sounds interesting. And then I was like, oh, uh, Martin de Madness had movie. We'll see. Well, I, uh. I don't. Mainly, what set me off was the was Neil Berger, where like I'm not anti Neil Berger, but you say he's attached to a film that doesn't like immediately get me going in the same way other directors would. So that maybe that's maybe that's actually my my issue. Um, is uh, he, he's a perfectly fine, serviceable director. Uh, I remember liking aspects of The Illusionist, um, but yeah, like he's like regardless of the premise, it will probably be realized perfectly fine and that's probably it yeah right uh-huh. it kind of sits in like that. i didn't like i didn't mind limitless i thought it was pretty good yeah. um but at the same time like very few of his movies like stand out to me in a way that like i think of him as like oh neil Berger, you know right yeah like basic competency which is such a horrible thing to say but i mean that's, yeah that's kind of <laughs> that's kind of looking at the you know the films that he's done um right it's a lot of studio work. I think that's the biggest thing too. Like it's, it's it feels less like personal and who knows, maybe he just really had a strong attachment to the first divergent book. And it just, that's the vision he wanted to make. But regardless, it just kind of sits there. It's like, yeah, all right. Like that's an idea. But, uh, I mean, premise wise, Lord of the flies in space seems like the concept here. And it's like, well, that's sure. That could be something. So, uh, sure. But yeah. as of now, we've seen a lot of those things. So we've seen, yeah, we've seen similar yeah. stuff for sure. Give me, give me, give me some of that event horizon. Space madness. See- Let's let's put it this way. Um, you know, when you say it conversationally, it's like, oh, that's interesting. But if I were to say, 
Lord, uh, Lord of the Flies in space. When suddenly you say it that way. Yeah, I'm suddenly – no, see, to me, that sounds more like someone is doing a, a, a – like they didn't – they forgot they had a meeting. And suddenly they're like, oh, shoot, uh, I got to come up with a pitch. And so on the drive over or maybe even on the elevator ride up, they're just like, OK, uh, what is something? And they just take something that everybody knows and then they just add the words in space, uh, thus trying to make it more dramatic. And, uh, yeah, it's uh, it just seems gimmicky to me. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it, makes sense. With, with nothing to base it on beyond basic descriptions right now. <laughs> exactly. It's, yeah. it's, you know, we can only only do so much of that. But for the time being voyagers has no release date currently so it, i assume i mean obviously it's been shifted but i have no idea when it's supposed to come out so just know that there's a movie out there that's called voyagers that has all that stuff going on for it mm. uh, all right well that's that let's move on let's get to our main review for mank mank it's orson wells of course it is I think it's time we talk. What is it the writer says? Tell the story you know. Hello, everyone. Make yourself to home, Mr. Mankowitz, or shall I call you Herman? Please, call me Mank. 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 This is Herman Mankowitz, but we have to call him Mank. Mankowitz. Herman Mankiewicz, New York playwright and drama critic, turned humble screenwriter, Mr. Hearst. This is a business where the buyer gets nothing for his money but a memory. What he bought still belongs to the man who sold it. That's the real magic of the movies. Thunder, lightning, blood, fire, religion. Help! Someone save me! All in one film. That's director proof. That's why I always want Mank around. That should have been some of the trailer for Mank. This film chronicles the development of the screenplay for Citizen Kane, starring and directed by Orson Welles. Written by Herman J. Mankiewicz, better known as Mank, Gary Oldman stars in this film as the hard-drinking writer who has spent years being around various studio executives, as well as wealthy newspaper mogul William Randolph Hearst, giving the audience a look at the way the Hollywood elite think and the politics of the time. Directed by David Fincher, he's working from a script written by his father, Jack Fincher, and the two made a clear effort to both evoke the times as well as comment on them. Tyler, as one who's yeah. fairly well-reversed in the work of Orson Welles, what did you think of this offbeat ode to his most famous feature? Um, I'm torn because stylistically the movie is a ton of fun. Um, I really – it's not merely that it's black and white. Uh, it's the way that it's black and white. It really is – you know, like high contrast and, you know, sort of occasionally like that film noir uh, lighting, you know, Venetian blinds and all that sort of thing. Um, and I really appreciate that. And then, you know, use of like blue screen or rear screen projection or something like that, like really trying to evoke uh, the style of the period. It sort of reminded me of the good German in that regard. So I really appreciate that. And in some cases, I really appreciate the writing uh, from a from a dialogue standpoint. Um, you know, characters have their own voice, mm -hmm. um, which I appreciate. And the acting is uniformly pretty solid. Um, Gary Oldman, unsurprisingly, is is great. But I also wanted to mention uh, Arliss Howard as Louis B. Mayer. I thought yeah. he did a really great job. Um but uh, but everyone does a does a really good job. Um, my issue, you know, is comes in in a couple different forms. Uh, I'm I'm instinctively defensive 
of Orson Welles, and I probably shouldn't be, but I am a big fan of Orson Welles, and part of me just feels like, you know, it's it's not enough that the studios spent, you know, he, he spent his entire life defending himself from the studios, but every once in a while somebody comes along and says, oh, maybe he's not so great, and it's just like, man, like, it, it, it's fine, like, it's it's worth discussing, uh, especially when it comes to, like, the screenplay for Citizen Kane, but uh, the film clearly comes down on a specific side and it's a side that i think was long ago debunked by peter bogdanovich um with uh, in regards to uh, pauline kale's raising cane essay but uh so it's tough like it's it's hard for me i can appreciate what the film is doing and even the way it's doing it uh but when i'm not really on board with its central um not even i guess its central premise but also its central goal mm-hmm. uh it just it it frustrates me but beyond that, I also don't think Mank is that interesting of a character as written. Um, certainly as played, they do what they can with him. But for the most part, you're just like, oh, okay, yeah, it's when it comes right down to it. Yeah, he's he's uh, a witty drunk, and there's something to be said for that. But unless he's uh, you know Nick Charles or something like that, uh, I'm not that interested. So I, I like I said, I wind up being torn on the movie uh, on a number of levels. Uh, Maybe the primary of which being that, like, I just don't know if it. I just don't know if the subject matter deserved an entire an entire movie. Hmm. Addressing what you just the kind of the last bit you just said, as far as Mank as an interesting central figure, um, I I see where you're coming from with that. And I feel like from my perspective, as one that I don't say it right now, I, I love this movie. I, I think it's fantastic. Um Looking at who Mank is in this story and the way it's constructed, I I can I can see like not getting a kind of I don't know an overall like victory beyond like things that the film wants to side with as far as what he accomplished. But in terms of like using him as the main character, I was less intru- I was less like into the idea of I'm definitely following this character as like some kind of goal to reach, and more just thinking. This is just a really fun entry point into the world that he exists in. I I think I think that I think you're correct and that is actually to the degree that I enjoy the character as a as sort of a way to view, you said an entry point as a way to view this world and obviously viewing it through like a cynical filter and all of that uh he definitely serves an interesting purpose in that way like he's not looking at the world in a straightforward way and so Serving that function as sort of a uh, an observer, albeit a you know certainly not a non-biased one. Um, I think that's where the character, as written, is is at his most intriguing. And, yeah. Um, so and, I so I'm I'm with you on that. Okay. And 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 in saying that, what I what I like about that is because we get a lot of films that you know are either centralized around a certain figure who meets you know a variety of interesting other characters along the way, and that tends to be the more interesting part of the story or leads to you know, like best supporting actor nominations or what have you, because that works where the main character is reactionary or what have you yeah. here, as opposed to someone like, I don't know, Nick Carraway, who's just kind of the boring guy that you have to use to get to Gatsby. This is like, not, not only do I get, you know, like you, you mentioned Louis B. Mayer or Charles Dance's Hearst or Amanda Seyfried's Marion Davies. Like those are all fun characters to watch and interact with and see. And, but like here you also have this guy that comes in, that's, 
he's like both contrarian but also falls in line with people to an extent as far as he is this wealthy white man that lives in hollywood like there's 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 a lot of stuff there that i do, that i think is capitalized on thanks to what i think is a pretty great screenplay we can talk a lot about the technical aspects of this film because it's david fincher and he knows what he's doing in that regard but mm-hmm. i was mo- i was most surprised by how much i was into that script uh, I, I am aware that yeah jack fincher wrote it i believe eric roth did some like uncredited stuff on it as well just to kind of it's an old screenplay so i don't know i think him, him and fincher have a pretty good working relationship so i think that's a big part of it but it, I, we'll get more into this but yes i mean on top of the things you mentioned like the, the not only the black and white cinematography which i think is excellent as far especially using a red camera and making black and white look this amazing um, the sound design is phenomenal in this film, yeah. uh, and the ways that it, it kind of it attempts to evoke Kane as well as other Wells films in general. But like the the narrative structure of this thing, the heightened dialogue that evokes it. Like there's just a lot of stuff here that, for a cinephile, I think is certainly you know worthwhile to see. But even for just like adults that like watching movies meant for adults i think there's a lot to enjoy there but i i'll stop because i want abe to talk to abe where, <laughs> i don't want to leave you out of this where, where are you with no, no, Mank? not at all um i didn't watch the movie hmm. i'm just i'm just kidding I did. <laughs> aaron aaron gets very annoyed when when i don't tell him beforehand that i didn't watch it no but as a, as far as like a movie goes uh, and as far as it being produced and, and released on on netflix is this a netflix release by the way yes, this is, is. Yeah. This is strong this is one of the stronger candidates of it. And I Aaron and I have had this debate off topic or off air where we talk about how strong Netflix releases are. And you know, sometimes you get something like extraction or sometimes you get something like um uh I'm thinking of ending things, right? Um mm-hmm. and so I think that this is a stronger entry into the Netflix um production of movies. What I like about this movie is what Aaron was describing there, a lot of the a lot of the technical aspects of this, including like, you know, cigarette smoke screens at the top right um or burns at the top right yeah um and things like that i i did like the script i did like the way that things were i I don't i want to say like punchy but they were interesting these these are interesting there's some punchy stuff in there you're not wrong there there are and there are some funny things that i laugh out loud about you know just some quips and whatever else um the characters are are fun enough to engage with um, especially as like these things go through and one of the things I thought about during this movie was just uh, how the theme of voting has been you know, omnipresent during this past year um, in a lot of movies and, and a lot of uh, um, uh, TV shows. So it's it's great to see that, I, I guess, come through and, and play through. The things I liked about this are you know, that Gary Oldman presents uh, himself on the screen as a, a confident uh, screenwriter who – isn't really afraid to say what's on his mind and and i haven't seen trumbo but i mean i guess this movie's better than trumbo um yeah and i, I think the, <laughs> i think the the controversy that you're talking about um tyler is interesting because i largely have not seen citizen kane except for simpsons episodes and <laughs> it, it's one of those things where you know do i think that he wrote it or he didn't write it like i i don't know and i but what I want to get to is two points, one of them being when you mention like, you know, if a movie doesn't really if it, if it feels as though it's like veering from what is known to be true, then it takes you out of it. And I completely understand because this is how I felt about American Sniper. Um, and it's like, well, if these things didn't happen, why are you making this movie and why are you painting it in such a way that makes this person or this character seem larger than is true? You know what I mean? 
Um, but on the other hand, it's like, well, I, I don't know that much about it. And now it's fascinating to think like, why was there power control or what what was the, the motive behind some of this stuff? And I, I like the way that the film, I guess toward the end there, when you get more of Orson, there, there's like this nice, like, you know, he's almost describing his, his interaction with Orson. But overall, I think the movie is a strong movie. It's one that I, I found enjoyable and I thought that there was um, a lot of, uh, good enough banter among some of the characters, but then, you know, whenever you think about like old Hollywood type movies, like um, what was the what was the Coen Brothers one? Um, Hail Caesar. Hail Caesar. It's like it's fun to kind of revisit these things, and it's cool to see all the production and set design, and just think to yourself, wow, that's that's pretty great that the people were able to make this happen and make it look pretty realistic. So like, like uh, beyond beyond some of the you know, deeper themes of the movie. A lot of what I like is just scenes like there's an early scene where Mank just kind of stumbles into a film set from where he's like, you know, living in or whatever. He's just kind of sure. visiting and he just kind of walks into a set and like, you know, you have Mayer there, you have Davies there, you have, uh, you have Hearst in the distance and he just starts kind of like talking and having conversation and it's fun. Like there's a lot, of, there's, I also, there's during a that lot. scene, I also mm-hmm. thought, man, it must be kind of boring to be on a movie set when like uh, the only thing that they're watching is like a tracking shot of like these these riders on on uh, horseback, and then everybody else is just like waiting for them to, to, well, to I mean, be done with. Movie said, I mean, it's you know, it's the office for these people. Sure, it's, sure, It's sure. people yeah, that are I, at I, work. Yeah. They're moving shut around. They're getting cameras right. set up, and there's actors that are just waiting to you know perform for you know three minutes before someone's gets cut. Like I can yeah, imagine it you know being boring at times if you're you know doing that on a like, daily basis. Just like character. But yeah, yeah I, but but I, what I think what I'm getting at is. I like that the film has that stuff in it. It just has scenes like right. that where you can just sure. kind of sit there with these people and they're talking about things they would have talked about that that time. Certainly there's a, I don't know, a, something like a, like a Steve Jobs quality as far as like characters talking about very specific things. Yeah, I was going to be like, there's like a, a 2020 quality about life. it. <laughs> like, that, but that's, you know, it's a movie. It's not, right. It can't be nothing but the mundane, sure. you know, details of a weekend or something like that. Yeah, the, the last thing I, was, I wanted to mention is like, the, it's a great score too. Um, oh my God! Yes, Atticus and uh, and uh, Trent. Um, so it, it's very, it fits the mood, and also it really is reminiscent of of these like 40s, 50s films. Um, and so yeah, good job, Tyler. The the I mean, you obviously pointed out that the film has a certain bent as far as the ownership of Citizen Kane, but yeah. as far as the film's kind of, I I think Fincher is obviously a, a big fan of, regardless of his thoughts on the you know credited writing as far as kane goes i think he's obviously a big fan of wells as a filmmaker which i mean oh, I, sure. i'd imagine any filmmaker is in general but did you appreciate the kind of because I, I found there was a lot of nods to just wells in general including like a shot of his nose which made me laugh <laughs> yes yes i i i really loved that uh because outside of i believe the third man i think wells always had a fake nose uh <laughs> in his movies so i thought that was because he never really liked his nose so i uh i i really liked that you know and then there's you know, direct stuff like there's a moment where, you know, Mank drops a, a, a bottle and it and it looks a lot like the 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 shot and the movement of the bottle looks a lot like the snow globe at the beginning of Citizen Kane. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I, I absolutely think that David Fincher is a fan of Wells's style, um, which is why I do think that it's it's so interesting to me again, like it there are sacred cows and there's nothing uh, wrong with uh, going after them. And uh, in the world of filmmaking, uh, Wells is kind of, is, is revered. 
And so there's outside of being, you know, not a not a very good husband and an almost non-existent father and being kind of an a kind of an asshole to people in general um, from a from a filmmaking standpoint. Uh, he is, you know, highly revered, but there's this blemish. There's this this authorship from a screenwriting standpoint, this authorship of Citizen Kane that has plagued him because that's the movie that defined him. And people say like, oh, well, you know, it is probably more this. And it just seems, you know, I found myself appreciating the irony mm-hmm. that so much of this screenplay seems to be, you know, actively inspired by the film critic Pauline Kael's uh, long essay, Raising Cain, in which she argues that so much of, of Cain's structure and just so much of what Cain is comes from Herman Mankiewicz. It's what the irony to me is that Pauline Kael was sort of an anti-autourist. She did not buy into the idea of the director as the film's sole author. And so it's interesting to base a film on something she wrote. And of course, we're, we're not talking about this being Jack Fincher's film. We're talking, everyone is excited about David Fincher's sure. film, yeah. you know? And so, uh, but obviously when we talk about authorship, we are talking in this regard, we're talking about it in regards to the screenplay and not in the larger sense, but it is frustrating that people try to take this away from, from Wells, uh, even though undoubtedly like Mankiewicz was in some ways the primary author, but it's, it wasn't quite the remove that you see in this film where Wells calls every once in a while while Mank writes this thing. And it's just such an interesting choice to, to do that. And it just like, as you said, like the Finchers clearly come down on a very specific point of view, but it's also a point of view that has been actively debunked by people that actually did their research, which Pauline Kael did not. She just like printed rumors and never actually asked the people that were involved. And it's such an odd choice. It, it really does feel like like they're trying to use this opportunity, which is fine, it works, to kind of champion the idea of the writer. Or, you know, given the film's political bent, you could say like, there are the people that are in charge and then there are the people that do the actual work and make the people in charge look good. And it, we need to champion those people as well. Um, so along those lines, I see what they're, you know, this, this story in particular can serve a lot of functions, but I think it's just something that frustrates me because similar to, you know, uh, years ago when I, when my wife and I went to visit San Simeon, um, and we went on a, yeah, it's amazing. And also insane. Uh, you know, you go on a tour and sure enough, uh, it wasn't me, but somebody asked a question about Citizen Kane and the tour guide was visibly annoyed uh, <laughs> at having to answer that. And it's one of those things like, yeah, uh, when you make a movie about something, that's what people know. Like people know William Randolph Hearst because of Citizen Kane and because, and now it's sort of because of this movie, I think it, it, I, I feel a little bit, I tense up a little bit because like, this film has now been made and it's not like people are going to go back and read Peter Bogdanovich's uh, extended essay from the 1970s to rebut it. Like this is now sort of setting it in stone and that kind of in, in the minds of some people. And I think that really bums me out. Because I, can't, I can't quite buy into that completely. I mean, that's, that, that feels the same. I hear what you're, I hear where you're coming from. And I mean, you know, obviously time will tell, 
but that like honestly sounds similar to being like people will like stop respecting bruce lee because they buy into quentin tarantino's movie as if like 50 years of him being an amazing martial arts star is somehow defied by one instance of a five minute scene in a movie like i but, th- but those that, are movies you can go back and watch on sure your own, I mean, I, as I mean, opposed to this being like well, yeah, i mean that's saying having... that's saying that cinema is the only way people can get information which yes people are lazy and i get that people yeah people can't people aren't lazy come on <laughs> I, I, well, I guess the, the specifics of this story, well, I, if someone is intrigued by it, they probably are not lazy. They might go do the that's research my on thought their own. Too. I mean, the well, kind of well, person that's going to watch Mank and like absorb this knowledge as more than just a, you know, a fun thing to or you know, a, a thing to watch on Netflix and just think more about the the the, the actual context of the situation is probably the same person that would go back and like watch it, you know, let alone watch Wells films, but watch you know Google, uh, watch the various documentaries on Kane and Wells or yeah. read up on things that are that are available as far as the, the, like the essay you're referring to or just a number of other things that are out there. I I don't I don't deny that yes there is a sect that will just kind of fall forward with what a film is presenting because that's the kind of world that we live in, but. I also don't want to blame the movie for that. That's that's on society. That's a different discussion, I think, at that point. Well, I want to ask, like, super briefly about the background of this. So the background of it is what, Tyler? I mean, basically, so, people are, 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 yeah, please. Like, how far into the background do you want to go? Just like that, a, a there's other things to talk about. So I want you, yeah, a nutshell would be great. <laughs> okay. Um. So essentially, okay. Uh, Herman Mankiewicz was uh, tapped by Wells to work on this screenplay. Uh. And the two of them kind of came up with the broadest possible subject, which is like, oh, something that's sort of inspired by the life of William Randolph Hearst, but also a couple other uh, big, uh, big personalities of the time. And Mankiewicz wrote, as as you see in the film, like a, a, a very long script, 320 something pages. Um, and then Wells and his producer, John Hausman. Um, and Hausman was there the whole time uh, working with Mankiewicz instead of kind of popping in and out. And wells was chiming in with oh don't forget to incorporate this or that or whatever and then you have the final script and then wells cut it down you just attacked it and cut it down from 320 pages to about 120 pages uh you know so cutting out um and rewriting it as he went and and uh but at the same time there was a contract that's because you know, Wells had just come to Hollywood and he had this image of being the boy wonder who's brilliant on radio and Broadway and all that sort of thing. And uh, he is somebody I think Wells always felt a little bit self-conscious that he was not a natural writer, um, but he was a good he was a natural rewriter. And so uh, I think there was this tendency. There's this both on the part of RKO, but also on the part of Wells, there is this feeling of. I need to arrive at Hollywood fully formed and show that I can produce, direct, write, and act. I can do all of it. And so there was this uh, contract that like Mank would not get uh, would not get credit, and Wells would, but then Mank wanted credit, and Wells pushed back, and RKO pushed back, uh, and then this is where you start to get disputes. Some people said that it was the Writers Guild that pushed for Mank to get the credit, and some said that Wells just decided to give him credit Mm -hmm. and given when you look at things like for example the the credit uh credit cards that's not right but when you look at the cards uh for citizen Kane, you realize that he actually shares his director card with cinematographer greg toland like that's not something he needed to do but he valued the cinematography so much that he shared his card with that so like clearly he wasn't opposed to sharing credit in that moment he absolutely did want to have the credit himself but 
I don't think he necessarily did it quite as reluctantly where he felt compelled right. by the writers guild to do that anyway, but it's stuff like that. It's, it's make yep. not having credit then wanting credit and then Wells giving credit or maybe reluctantly. It's hard to say, but it started these rumors uh, or these, this view that Mank basically wrote the entire script and that Wells really didn't write a word. And yet his name is on it. And he also, you know, he co won the Oscar and all that sort of thing. And I think sure. that's what started that's what started everything. And and uh, yeah, so it it sort of undercuts what Wells did contribute to the screenplay while also, uh, I don't know, uh, raising up the writer in the larger Hollywood sense. Sure. So uh, that's probably more background than you were wanting. But that's no, that was great. Looking yeah. at. I mean, in talking in talking about this, because I want to get to like other aspects of the film, because I mean, one thing about Mank is that it's not really about Kane. Like, that's the that's the other thing that I. I, that not only surprised me, but just like it, it intrigued me more based off the things that it kind of digs into on a high on a deeper level and the fact that it's very relevant to today. Uh, I, I agree with you. I kind of wish, uh, you know, nothing. There's nothing wrong with the, the Kane stuff as far as how it's presented. But uh, I was much more intrigued by like the stuff from the 1930s. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I and I like how the film uses a kind of flashback structure in the same way that Kane does, which, again, mm -hmm. I, I mean, Yes, the film has like a slant towards like, or at least it's committing to a slant that, as far as like where, kind of where where Mank's contributions were versus Wells, but I mean part of that's just abridged, I I believe sure. honestly, and also, it's it's a movie, it's heightened, like it's not trying to be a doc, it's not trying, it's not even trying to be like, like RKO two eighty one, right, the the HBO film mm -hmm. that's really about the making of of Citizen Kane, like it's not trying to be that, it's trying to be this kind of stylized I mean, obviously just from the filmmaking alone stylized take on this time and place and this person's role in it if it happens to you know give a slant a certain way i feel like that's just kind of a you know a side effect of like the main story it's telling which is about this guy who doesn't agree with these elites that are very much trying to like <laughs> comment on uh these kind of views on socialism of the time and Upton Sinclair and the politics of the round and like, was that Bill what? Nye, by the way? Yes, it yes. was. And it's okay. the best cameo of the year. And I'm surprised. Yeah. No, nobody's been talking about this. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I don't think it worked. I thought it was honestly distracting. I it's, He's not in it enough for it to be distracting. I was just like, that's fun. Like that's, <laughs> I was just like, I can't tell if that's Bill Nye. Cause it's like a really far shot and it's kind of dark, but it what looks got like me is that it's like, he doesn't act like <laughs> that's what threw me off. It's like he's well, he movie. was explaining, you know, socialism, so he was doing what it. Yeah, he's doing does. the thing he does, which is point out logic. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, I you know, the Kane stuff feels like a side story. It feels like it's a it's a a, a guy a framing device of sorts, obviously, because of what Meg is ultimately doing. But I, I mean, again, the stuff I like in this movie are the, like you just mentioned, that the stuff that kind of goes back to the past. Uh, like, beyond just, like, the film stuff, the thing, like, the, there's a party in Hearst's castle, that's always fun to say, um, with just all of them sitting around, like, the fireplace discussing, like, Germany and the fact that Hitler's taking over and these politics of the time. And there's these, like, really fun zingers that are going back and forth with Mank, who's, you know, a, a controlled drunk at this point before he goes off the deep end later on, where he's just like, they keep throwing things his way and he keeps batting them off. And it's just, it's just a really like, I just find it really sharp. And just like the, the way you can like, you can look at these, the way these people are thinking and measure that up to how people of today are thinking and, and see that Fincher has like more in his mind than just like making an ode to Wells. And I found that to be really oh, yeah. interesting. 
Yeah, and I think that's, you know, I found myself almost frustrated because as we were talking about before, the idea of Mank being sort of our entry point mm -hmm. into the story, I, I almost wish he were more of that because sure. I, I wanted to see more of Hearst. I wanted to see more of uh, of Marion, although we do get that nice moment where the two of them are just walking around the estate. And, and I liked that. Um, but I just like I almost wish that, that the film had been, in, again, entirely about this strange dynamic of just there's there's a uh, you know a weird guy who just has people to his castle and he just keeps people around him that he is either entertained by or they just are you know toadies or whatever uh, and just this this group of extremely powerful people just talking about the world uh, and I recognize that you know we're not looking for uh, my dinner with Andre or anything like that but to me that that can be just as uh, maybe even more like damning of of like modern attitudes uh, as, as anything else. And so like, I just, I, thankfully there's like the organ grinders monkey thing that, that right comes on. in towards the end where you get to see a little bit more of Hearst. But I just, I, first off, I think Charles dance is doing such a great job. I wanted to see more of him mm -hmm. and I wanted to see more of the dynamic between him and Marion as viewed by Mank and all that as it is. It's just like, he's, he seems almost like he's sort of a fly on the wall who occasionally chimes in with a one liner and I don't know, it's it felt like we just we got just enough of it for me to want more, but not in the fun way where it's like, oh, I'll always leave them wanting more. It's more just like this feels incomplete. It feels like there's more to this that they're not giving me uh, for whatever, because they want to focus on Mank as a more dynamic character, which is understandable. But, you know, outside of of, you know, co-writing. Yeah. Citizen Kane. <laughs> uh, he you know, he was kind of known for for many years as. A, uh, an amusing guy to to keep around and that was sort of it and i feel like i i would have liked to see more of that what is it like to be because hollywood has these types of people uh people who maybe once were famous or maybe they're just they're entertaining and so people keep keep them around you know almost like a, a sort of entourage and i feel like i would have been so much that would have been so much more intriguing to me um but uh as it is it feels like it's trying to it's trying to draw parallels thematically between, you know, the uh, the Sinclair candidacy and then what RKO and Wells are, are trying to do to Mank and then trying to draw parallels between that and what's happening in the modern day. And I appreciate uh, a film being ambitious in that regard. But if it's trying to do so many things that the stuff that, in my view, is most intriguing is not done completely, uh, that that winds up being frustrating to me. And I, I mean, that's where we differ as far as like the length of good that we think the film is, I feel, because I, I did mm. I did have the sense of I I was happy to have this feeling of wanting more and not frustrated by it. And I think part of that's just because I'm not also getting rankled by the Wells thing, which I think also factors in for you as well. Sure, sure. Um, but I mean, to to sidestep that, to get back to like Fincher's effort on this film, the production quality, because we, we've talked about the fact that it's good, but let's, we can get into that a little bit more. Uh, but part of how I want to start that is. What do you think of Fincher like tackling something like this as like a, a, a director who's, you know, well, well renowned in both like, you know, film lover circles as well as just in general. I mean, he's been nominated, I think, twice for best director at this point. Um, what what do you think about a, someone like him um, the, the tackling what is ostensibly referred to as one of the greatest, if not the greatest film of all time? Like the the idea of a director that's going to make a film that's you know, commenting on that and evoke and being direct, not, or, you know, not obviously not a remake, but, you know, something that's, 
daring to go up against something like Citizen Kane. Is that an open question? Or yeah, is that an for, open question. for Tyler? It's an open question. I'll, I'll, I'll let Abe go for it. Yeah, for the most part, I mean, we know that David Fincher is a very capable director and he pays a lot of attention to detail. This is not a story in which I don't think that he was researching everything that he wanted to, to make and show and put into the movie um, and probably knowing exactly what the budget was going to be. You know what I mean? So it, it doesn't surprise me that there's a story that he wants to tell. I mean, think about Mindhunter, right? I mean, he was like, great, let's figure out how the FBI decided to, to do behavioral sciences. Um, it's like there's nothing that surprises me when David Fincher decides to take something on, aside from maybe the fact that, uh, you know, he, he does he still wear a goatee? Yes. <laughs> That's like, come on. You know, the the 2000s are over. We're in 2020 now. You can you can probably just shave. It's an interesting <laughs> ending point there. Um, it's the only thing that's dated about him. It's like... It is. It's an interesting choice to, for him to make this film because, you know, if you granted, I've I've never seen um, Benjamin Button. Uh, I know I probably should, uh, but I'm also not sweating it. Um, Tyler, I don't know if you know this, but as they were getting older, he was getting younger. What's that from? That's from something. That's from Benjamin Button. <laughs> Somebody says that? Of course. <laughs> they literally say that? I believe Taraji P. Henson says that, and then she got an yeah, Academy Award right. nomination. Yeah. All right, well. Or he narrates it himself. Something you know what I think is I, happening to me. I think I'm still – I think I'm <laughs> – <laughs> <laughs> hmm. It's a very curious case. Um, but, uh, yeah, I – when you watch Fincher stuff, I mean, he definitely is an auteur. You, you know, you could watch the game, you can watch Zodiac, you can watch, uh, gone, gone girl. And you really get a sense that you're watching the same director. And which is why this is such a departure because he is, he's not trying to, he's trying to capture somebody else's style, not just Wells, but just directors of that time. Uh, and just the style of that time. And so it's, it's an odd instinct. You know, I, I mentioned earlier, the good German, uh, you know, Steven Soderbergh is he's the experimenter. He's the one yep. that is like, can I do this? And Fincher, by and large, is not that uh, like, you know, when he made Zodiac, uh, he wasn't trying to make uh, he wasn't trying to necessarily evoke the filmmaking of that time, like sort of the gritty new Hollywood thing. He I, still I, had I was, it, it was a little bit closer to that, but he still kind of had his slick sort of occasionally emotionally cold like tone he, he definitely uh, is. I, I would say he's an experimenter in a in a different way he's not he doesn't challenge form all that much he challenges right. the technology like zodiac the notable sure. thing there is that was the first film shot on like first ma full major studio film shot on red i believe uh, yeah so it it's more like he, he he can make a film that's from a certain time period but using like the latest and greatest technology it's not unlike you know, like Spielberg making Indiana Jones, where it's like, yeah, I'm making a pulp adventure, but I'm going to use the best stuff available to me. Yeah, it's I, I don't I don't condemn him wanting sure, to, sure to make make. It's more just uh, it's it's an interesting kind of an outlier in his career or maybe or is it, you know, who's to say that from now on, maybe he just decides like, all right, I've done my thing for a while. I want to try and do something else. And maybe I don't know what his next film is or what he's planning on, but uh, maybe this is, uh, you know, a new phase where he feels a little bit more freedom to do the kind of thing he wants to do uh, or, or just sort of follow a certain fancy or something like that. So uh, I'm definitely intrigued, but it's 
the the choice to make this movie this way, like you said, he doesn't really experiment with form, and that's very much what this is. And I think he he realizes it beautifully, um, which is why I'm even more intrigued to see what he does next. Like, does he view this? I'm sure he enjoyed himself and enjoyed the challenge, but uh, if he views it as like an uh, an out and out triumph uh, artistically, I'm I'm interested to see if he just kind of goes back to what he what he usually does or if he sees this as like all right this is licensed for me to go and and follow my uh i don't know follow whatever passion i have at the in the moment i mean aside from gone girl which is was his last film six years earlier at this point he's yeah. been pretty friendly with netflix i mean he 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 That's shot the deal, first though. two episodes yeah. of house of cards he did Mindhunter. He's, yeah. he's he's produced that um that anim that like short animated film series that's on Netflix. He's one of the producers on that, so he's giving other you know artists uh, a chance to you know do their work and put it out there on a large scale. And now he's got this going. Honestly, like I'd much rather see him do this kind of experimental stuff or what have you, whatever he just feels comfortable doing, than seeing him do you know World War Z two, which he was you know on, yeah. trying to work on with Brad Pitt for a number of years before that got canceled altogether. I mean, <laughs> looking at this film, what gets me is. This would tank today. It's sad, but like if this came out from Mank like, would tank. Yes, Mank would Mank would tank. Um, if you know, if like Paramount released this, you know, now it'd be like it'd get that you know reception. I think we that all know that to. MGM would release it, Aaron. Come on. <laughs> but regardless, it's just like there's. I don't see a world where a movie like this could exist, and I feel like a filmmaker that has the opportunity to get you know. 40 50 million whatever it costs for this money to make a movie exactly the way they want to make it such as this that's not inherently commercial in 2020 i i can't see him being like let me go back to the studio so i can you know make some but i feel like that's play. why he went to netflix no, i'm saying i'm saying i can't like, I, I can't see him right right but i mean like the other direction. even even now i mean even he his stance has always been that he felt as though the studios are too controlling wasn't it so that's why he wanted to go to netflix that's why he like hasn't been directing anything major he's just been just producing and, and saying like, great, well, I'll just develop things here because they're going to throw money at me. I'm not going to use all of it, but, you know, there's there's a funding here that allows me to do what I want to do. And it's, yeah, you know, it's, it's a passion project and it's written by his father. And it, I'm saying so it's, it's it's this passion project he's he's wanted to do for a while. He wanted oh. to do what, it was, uh, what the news came out, uh, Kevin Spacey and Jodie Foster. He wanted to have yeah. uh, Mank and, uh, and Davies. Uh, but now he's got to do it this way and mm -hmm. I mean, I, it's on that on that subject. Yeah, like, I, I completely agree as far as I don't see why he'd want to not continue doing something right. in this realm, which is putting him closer and closer to something like Soderbergh, honestly, right. as far as like the, the options that are available to him based off the stuff he wants to do as he get old, as he gets older. Um, and and looking at that, as far as this being a Fincher film, yeah, it it like it is a departure. At the same time, it fits like it fit as far as his like evolution as a filmmaker goes. It is yeah, it's a move away from the kind of stuff people tend to associate it with. But like watching this movie. Watching the way it's filmed, watching the, I mean, it... again, I I, de I definitely don't like what I think about Fincher is attention to detail, and this movie pays attention to a lot of detail. Mm -hmm. That's why I was like, it completely fits his mo. Yeah, it does in that regard. Like, I mean, in a way, like philosophically, it fits with what he wants to do, which is like, if he's gonna do something, he will do it all the way, and this requires. I, I mean. It, I do I do connect this with Zodiac because, again, like you're dealing with a different period. And so mm -hmm. there's there's all of these, whether it be costumes or makeup or hairstyles or whatever, uh, he has to fully realize it. And and I think in both cases, he he did that. Uh, the difference here being like 
he was trying to also approximate the style uh, in which those movies themselves were made instead of just trying to capture the realistic aspects of the period. And uh, yeah, it's, it is interesting what Netflix is doing where they, you know, they, they take very respected filmmakers and basically give them a free hand and give them what would appear to be sometimes an unlimited budget. And it's weird that like, I love that they're doing that. And yet somehow (laughs) Yet somehow it still has not engendered in me a respect for Netflix. I know. Uh, it it <laughs> yeah. should, but it just everything. It just feels. I don't know why. Like it just. Yeah. It just feels like Let, the executives give are David Air like, all the money and let's give some of it to David Fincher. Yeah, it's. I don't know what it's. It's almost like I just picture like a a cigar chomping guy being like, "Hey, you know what? We don't have we don't have any Oscars. We we're running a legitimate operation here. What do we do?" And it's like, well, people like this director's like, give him a bunch of money. Like it's like. I don't think they're that interested in what these directors are doing. I think they like having the name uh, sure. and having this stable of directors. Um, but uh, that might just be me being cynical. It, I mean, it is. And I, I'm guilty of the same thing to an extent at the same time. There's, at this point, their stable of good films is quite strong for me as far as th- these, you know, high high acclaimed directors works go because i mean you have this you have coron's roma you have the irishman last year you have yeah. spike lee's to five bloods you have you you have uh coen brothers making an anthology western it, like what i like is not only that i'm getting what i think are great films but also movies that just wouldn't have a chance anywhere else like there, there's no world where you could you can now see a 200 million dollar three out three out three and a half hour gangster movie from martin scorsese which is like well, that's that's annoying that I don't get. Let alone they fucking got the other Wells movie. You got the Lost Wells movie from Netflix. Yeah. You got the other side of the wind. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it's... I would argue that it's not so much that you know there's no studio place for these things. It's more that the studios know that they have to pivot toward these blockbuster movies. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not gonna be able to see this because there's 19 screens at a 21 theater movieplex that's playing marvel's uh, avengers endgame you know what i mean it's, like, i mean it's, i know what you're saying it's less that it's less the opportunity for people to see them and nor just the chance for them to be made to begin with in the sure. way that they they're intended to be made like right. i i could i can i'm getting plenty of if I'm, i think of like what studios will release and what will play in theaters i'm still get i'll obviously this year aside i'm still getting like you know things that are experimental or weird they're just smaller they're smaller in scale there's not another studio that's giving me the giving a director that much of a leash to do whatever with that amount of money that's what i'm not getting a lot of these days and that's i mean and when you do they you know bomb and then they don't get made again for another five years look at something like i don't know annihilation which had like no chance but was this crazy ambitious sci-fi thing yeah i mean it's i i Again, there is there is a certain cynicism to me that says like, yes, the, the uh, Netflix made all these good movies, but did they even know they were good movies, or did they just like the name? They like having the name of the director. Yeah, but whatever. That's, that's part of where my life is too, honestly. And, you know, we talked about this like really early on. I love how this is like derailed into like a a, a <laughs> mank into like the streaming wars, but this is where I felt Netflix was trying to do when Amazon won their their. Oscar for Manchester by the Sea, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It was like, great, well, now we have to try and win an Oscar, too. And we tried to put out uh, Beast of No Nation, and, and that really didn't get a whole lot of awards love. And then they, they started winning Oscars, too. But, yeah, that's kind of where my life is, too, Tyler. And I, it's, but and it's at understandable. The same time, and part of me is just like, well, what do I care? You know, right. if the movies are still being made, uh, I don't 
it shouldn't matter to me what Netflix's motivation or even what their reaction to the movie is, as long as the movie gets made and they keep uh, <clears throat> they keep green lighting things. So, you know, I don't really care one way or another. It's more just me. Uh, I don't know. Being a jerk. <laughs> <laughs> to put it back to Mank, yep. which I mean, I feel like th- these are conversations that Mank and Hearst and people would be having if it sure. was, you know, set in a more contemporary time as far as, you know, what studios do what and like with the politics involved. Yeah, um, absolutely. But to to talk more about Mank for a bit before we kind of wrap it up, because I know I've been talking a lot about it, uh, is, as far as the production, more of the more in the production side of things, you mentioned the score, which I do think is excellent. Um, I, I earlier mentioned the sound design, which I do think is, it, yeah, I think is fascinating. Just it's the, evoking it, of like those '40s '50s movies as well, like for whatever yeah, reason. Like, did you guys have like the echo in your extra speakers? Oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah it's not exactly crystal clear. There's a little bit of grit to it, mm-hmm. which is just yeah. Even if you watch like the most cleaned up movie from that era, just sound they just sound different, and this yeah. sounds different. And I, I really. To me, that's where the the real attention to detail comes in. Like, yes, you could focus on the visual, but there is an audio component as well, and he captured that. Yeah. And uh, and I really appreciated it. And again, the the picture quality is interesting too. I don't know if you guys, maybe it was just my TV, but they, there are some scenes that are brighter than others. It fades, like the black and white fades into like more reddish hue. Uh, there's some more grayer tones. It, it's very fascinating, just like scene to scene, cut to cut. Yeah, it, it's there. You're not wrong. I mean, there's. Yeah. there's a very deliberate choice made well i kept on like scene. walking or standing up and down when i was watching this I was like is something wrong with my tv <laughs> so i was like no it's he's just doing this and so good on him and it's all controlled because i mean Correct. again you've mentioned many times he he is very much paying attention to every detail and he knows every frame of this movie so it's like the the levels he's putting out as far as what he wants to communicate in various scenes whether it's you know basic spacing of the characters or you know how he's framed certain shots or what have you what ways he's using shadow again all shot digitally which again you can control every aspect of i just find that all of that i was just taken in by like any shortcoming that i could somehow find and i'd really honest for me i just haven't found really any it's made up for by the fact that it's just an immaculate production all around so it's like i i can't really get by that uh, I want to move on, but and I will just say we haven't talked much about the performances, but there is a feedback question that refers to that, so we can talk a little bit okay. more about that um, in the in the coming minutes here. Uh, but as far as when people should go and see this movie, as as how we rate things here, um, it's on Netflix now. Tyler, when should people see Mank? Should they put it right at the top of their queue? Should it just be in there? Should they what, what should they do? I would say prioritize it. Um... Though it, it is interesting. So I was watching this uh, my along with uh, having new children. My wife and I also have a house guest. And uh, he's a younger guy who is kind of still still getting into movies, you know. Uh-huh. And so he was excited to see like a David Fincher movie. He has seen Citizen Kane, but that's about as far as it goes. He didn't know really the names of any of the players or, or anything like that. And so I, I, I checked with him and said like, what did you think of this? Like, are, were you able to follow it? He goes, not really. He goes, I, I, I was, I was able to follow it within the context of it. He goes, but I'm pretty sure I was, I was supposed to come in knowing a lot of these names already and, and a lot of these relationships. And so, you know, if, if you're somebody who is really interested in Fincher, but maybe you don't have much of an understanding of older films or you haven't seen Citizen Kane or you haven't, not necessarily from a research standpoint, but if you just don't know a lot of the stuff that's that was going on at the time or even like who Hearst was or Marion Davies or anything like that, um, 
I'd suggest like just do like a just a a quick like just bone up on on the background a little bit uh, because the film I think to its credit it assumes that you know this stuff and then it moves forward. It's not handholding. No, it, not at all. Uh, and I kind of appreciate that and I was able to follow it because I love Wells and I've read a lot about it. Um, but yeah, my my friend certainly was not in that situation. So what I would say is you know go and watch this. But if you you know if you feel confident about knowing a lot of the background of Wells and California politics, oddly enough, um, then, uh, you know, go with God. But at the same time, uh, <laughs> if you, if all of this is new to you and you're just excited to see another David Fincher film, uh, I'd say, uh, hold off, maybe read one or two, uh, Wikipedia articles and then, and then keep going. Hey, about you? What would you say people yeah. should see, Mank? On our, on our old scale, this is a theater movie. On our new scale, this is, yeah, you should queue it up. And, you know, to that, to that point that, that Tyler just talked about, I didn't really know as many characters. I definitely know who uh, Willem Randolph Hearst and I knew who uh, some of these people were. But at the same time, because they are somewhat like archetypes, they, they become archetypes of people that we know today. Um, you do get a sense of who they are and what they're, what they're doing. Because, I mean, when we're talking about uh, the president of MGM, it's just like, yeah, this guy's a fucking idiot who just <laughs> is in power. You know what I mean? So you know a ton of those people already. And he just talks like he just talks bullshit because he doesn't know anything about the world. He doesn't know anything about politics. And then there are puppet masters that are behind the scenes that are able to manipulate him in such a way. And that's that's what uh, I was able to take away from it from a 20th century perspective, 21st century perspective. But, yeah, you should go see this movie. I agree. I think the movie's fantastic. I, I, among among one of the best, I would say, for 2020. It, it uh, did a lot for me as far as one that I, I, I know – as much as I know about Wells and I, I mean, you know, Citizen Kane is, <laughs> it's pretty good guys. Um, so, I, uh, no, I was, I was just, and you know, being a big David Fincher fan, all of these aspects just really led to a movie for me that just worked on all levels. I, I thought it was a lot, it's weird to say fun, but I think there's a lot of fun in this. It movie. is we fun. Can, we we yeah. can talk a lot about like, you know, the drama on display and the parallels of the time and how some things are depressing or whatnot. But at the same time, it's like, this movie's also fun, which is also what Kane is. I think there's a lot of Kane that's really fun. So, like, my side question to you guys is, like, not only when should you see this, but when should people watch Kane in a proxy? I feel like if you're watching this movie, you'd probably be in more in the mood to be like, I should watch Citizen Kane. Would you think it makes sense to watch that before this movie? Or would you think it makes sense to watch it after? And I'll say right now, I watched it after. I mean, I've seen Kane plenty of times, but I watched Citizen Kane after I watched Mank just because I was obviously in the mood. But I feel like that that helped as far as by by comparison for me. I thought that was it would it was better for me to watch Kane after watching Mank than watching it beforehand. But I, I'm curious if you guys have any thoughts on that. No, I'm on that boat too. I would. I mean, I do think that you should watch it beforehand. I think again, I I, I from an intentionality standpoint, I definitely think that Fincher is moving forward, assuming maybe not that you know all the players all the behind the scenes players but that you at least have seen citizen king um i think he is moving forward with that and so uh you know uh, why not be accommodating and go ahead and, and watch the film um and uh, then by all means watch it afterwards uh <laughs> because uh, it might give you uh more of an appreciation both of what fincher is doing and what wells did um and then i would also while we're at it if anybody is interested uh and i realize that i've come off as as kind of a, a you know, Wells apologist, but, uh, I am cause I think he was absolutely brilliant, but, um, it is worth watching just from a, a film criticism standpoint. It can be uh, actually a lot of fun. Go and read Pauline Kael's 
very long essay, Raising Cain. And then after that, go and read Peter Bogdanovich's response, uh, which is, I believe, called the Cain Mutiny. Read one and then the other. And it's it's you know, we don't you don't really run across this anymore. But there was a time when critics would write back and forth against each other, like in publications. And uh, that doesn't really happen so much anymore. But uh, but it's fun to, re- you know, you have two critics and, and admittedly Bogdanovich was also a filmmaker and someone who is a friend of Wells. But uh it just these two really solid writers like at the top of their craft. And even though I think Pauline Kael was tremendously lazy in what she was writing, she was still a wonderful wordsmith. Um, so I'd, I'd recommend going and finding her essay, Raising Cain, and then find uh, Bogdanovich's response and uh, and enjoy because it's it's a lot of fun to read that stuff. Two mm. things. I will try to find those uh, articles to put them in the show notes. I don't think it should be too hard. Um, and the other thing, you, you're talking about critics writing back and forth. One of the funnier it just because it feels like such it's almost an inside thing just because of people that don't know this as far as like what the times were like but when you have um mank and davies just like walking in the courtyard and they're just kind of trading stories Mm -hmm. and she says something i forget what it is exactly she says something that's kind of like gossipy or not Uh, and and mank just goes hedda like he just goes as if like the gossip (laughs) journalist it's like that's a bunch of like little fun moments like that just populate the movie and i just completely and it probably would be worth it to watch rko 281 as well uh that actually is also done with like a stylistic flourish and uh and it's it's a lot more straightforward in a lot of ways but yeah like luella parsons and hedda hopper are both active characters you get a lot more of like hearst and marion and that sort of thing it's stylistically i mean it doesn't come close to this but the performances are really solid and uh, and i i always liked it that one they fudge a little bit on uh, timeline and on you know the origins of things um as well so please keep that in mind but uh, but it's you know it's fun watching all this stuff like one thing leads to another go watch the cat's meow you know watch citizen kane watch the the watch hell caesar the, uh, yeah absolutely uh you know it's it can be one thing can lead to another and mm-hmm. i do think that that could possibly be part of what fincher does is i think this is in its own way kind of a celebration of film and i think he would want you to go and watch Citizen Kane, if not other Wells films, and then go and, you know, look up, oh, what stuff did Herman Mankiewicz write? And that sort of thing. So uh, I'm grateful to this movie and movies like it because they rarely just say, okay, you've watched this and you're good. Instead, it's like, okay, you've watched this, but now what? Now what are you going to go watch? You know, Mm -hmm. and uh, and that's something that I that I really appreciate about it. Well. With all that in mind, and speaking of fun, let's uh let's move on to a little thing. Wait, Abe, what uh what can we move on to here? Is it a game? It is a game. <laughs> David Fincher's The Game. <sighs> little known fact, that was actually the uh, the ringtone that they were supposed to use in the movie Mank, but you know Lily Collins is like that's too modern. <laughs> that's that's what happened. Yeah. Uh, that was the improv theme for games, of course, and I have a game for you guys this week. It is called. Old Man Wells, or Old Man okay. Wells. Okay. I am going to describe, so just to back up, Wells and Gary Oldman have both played a lot of villains um, in their careers. Mm-hmm. Uh, I am going to describe the villain character they are playing from a film, and you have to mm-hmm. guess whether it's a Gary Oldman character or an Orson Welles character. Okay. I feel like Tyler's going to sweep this, but let's go. I, I, I try. I, I, I try. You'll see. Necessarily. Yeah. I, I had to get creative with some of these. <laughs> uh, if you know the film, there's bonus points right there. But mainly you're just guessing if it's Gary Oldman or Orson Welles. Got it. Okay, here we go. If you think you know the answer, shout out your name. Here we go. Here's the first one. 
a business mogul made a deal with the devil for riches. <laughs> hmm. um, I'm going to say that's Wells in any number of movies. <laughs> <laughs> incorrect. Oh, okay. Does that I mean that could... I get it? I mean, if you guess. Gary Oldman. Do you want to take a stab at what film this is? It's the one with Harrison Ford. It's not that one, no. <laughs> not not even close. Uh, it is The Fifth Element. Oh. Oh, is he a businessman? He's, I mean, his name's on a bill. He's like, he's the, he's the, oh, okay. the business guy. And he makes okay. a deal with literally some kind of alien devil that's trying to destroy the planet for riches. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, so you're, you're thinking very literally. Got it. Yes. Because, right. yeah, because in, in Mr. Arcaden, which is a, a Wells he, film, he plays a, he's sort of the main character, but he's also, he's also the villain of the piece and he's a businessman and all that. So I, I mean, assumed of, it was that. A lot of these, you know, have to be somewhat similar so I can make exactly. the game work. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Here's, here's the next one. A corrupt police officer who plants evidence to pin a bombing on a suspect. Oh, Abe. Okay, that is... Abe? Okay, yeah. Abe? That is definitely Gary Oldman. Tyler? That is Wells. Wait, yeah. Abe, were you joking? Uh, yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> were you joking? Yep. <laughs> what, what movie do you think that is? Uh, it's that one Orson Welles movie. <laughs> Thank you, Tyler. Okay, I can't tell if Abe is joking or not now. <laughs> no, hit it. It's no, touch I, of I... evil. It is touch of evil. Here's the next one. Yeah. A corrupt police officer deals with the aftermath of murderous actions. Yeah, no, Abe. That's Abe? Uh, Gary Oldman. Yeah. Yep. Which film do you think that is? Uh, that's the one where uh, he's got a he screams at everyone. It is that one. It is the professional. It is Leon the professional. <laughs> a film I've never seen actually. It's a it's a good one, though the um the dynamic uh, might play a little bit different. Doesn't work well these days. Yeah. Yeah. Here's the next one. An assassin hired by a Nazi goes after a naval engineer. Hmm. Oh wait, hang on. What was it again? Sorry. An assassin hired by a Nazi goes after a naval engineer. Assassin. Is he in there? I think that's. I think that's Wells, but I, 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 is it is it Journey into Fear? It is Journey into Fear. Wow. Right. Right. Yeah. Good job. Now I will say, just He's for the record, I'm very assassin. sorry. Uh-huh. I, I can only play a couple more rounds, and then okay. uh, and then I have to get going. That's fair. Get... We, th- th- there's not too many more. We can I'm get pretty them. sure okay. you've already beat me. <laughs> You're tied, actually. But oh, okay. okay. Here's the next one. A patriot for his country with plans to go after the people in charge. Abe. Abe? Uh, Gary Oldman. It is Gary Oldman. Air Force One. It is Air Force One. There we go. You're on the right track. (laughs) How about I just take all the Gary Oldman ones and Tyler takes all the Orson Welles ones? It is playing that way so far, but here's the next one. A Nazi hides in a small town to erase his identity. Tyler. Tyler? (laughs) That's Welles. That's the stranger. That is the stranger. (laughs) Here's the next one. A ruthless wealthy man attempts to make a prophecy become true. Tyler. Tyler? That is Wells. That's the uh, the the immortal story. It is the immortal story. <laughs> Here's the next one. A businessman uses offshore accounts to help the rich and powerful prosper. Oh, boy. Uh, Abe, that's Gary Oldman. <laughs> it, yeah, it is Gary Oldman. <laughs> <laughs> and buy... I don't know what movie it is. <laughs> the 50-50 shot's really working in your favor here, but... <laughs> Tyler, any idea which Gary Oldman film this could be? No, I can't think of it. 
It's it wouldn't be an easy one to guess. It's the laundromat. Steven Soderbergh's film. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Here's the next one. An elusive billionaire pretends to not remember his own past. Oh, Tyler. Yeah. That's Mr. Arcaden. That's Mr. Arcaden. Yeah. <laughs> How many do I have here? What's this going to come? I hope to? that you don't have an even number of questions. <laughs> okay. Well, th- let's see. Here's the la- here's the last one. Okay, great. If we need it, <laughs> we'll see if there's a bonus question. But and I do, yeah, I do need to get going. Okay, so I'm sorry. No, you're you're fine. A wealthy homeowner whose eternal love will be his downfall. Hey, Gary Oldman. Yeah. In that in Firewall. <laughs> That's an Harrison Ford movie. I'm gonna say Wells. It's. But it's not Wells. It's not Wells. Oh, okay. <laughs> I don't know what movie it is though. Well, let's see. This this should be the tiebreaker question then. What movie is this? A wealthy homeowner whose eternal love will be his downfall. It's a Gary Oldman film. Oh, is it? Oh, no, I don't know. Is it? What? No. Sid and Nancy. A wealthy homeowner. Yeah, no, he's wealthy in that movie. Whose eternal love will be his downfall. And Nancy's his eternal love. Immortal Beloved? It's not Immortal Beloved. Uh, oh, Bram Stoker's Dracula? It's Bram Stoker's oh, Dracula. Yeah. That's the correct answer. He's a homeowner, right? That's yeah, I guess. He owns that castle. He owns that castle. Uh, Valiant, I'm saying it's a tie. I think this sure. is a good round of games in general. Go. I think we all we all learned something, I think, from this yeah. episode. <laughs> but um, no, good job, guys. I thought Thanks. this was fun. I hope yeah. you guys had fun as well. Uh, Tyler, I'm aware that you need to take off. So what, before you go, where, where can people find more of your work online? Uh, they can find me at BattleshipPretension.com and MoreThanOneLesson.com. And then, as you mentioned at the beginning, I did uh, direct a documentary called Real Redemption, The Rise of Christian Cinema, which is available on Faith Life TV and also features the dulcet tones of one Aaron Newarth. What? <laughs> I do have a, a very small part in that. <laughs> Indeed. But uh, a but vital part. I, I would say so. But, uh, Tyler, thank you very much for joining us for this episode of Talk Mank with us. Thank you, Tyler. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. For sure. And uh, we'll be able to uh, be sure to uh, talk with you soon. Okay, yeah. absolutely. Thanks, guys. Yeah. yeah. But wait, listener, the show now is not over. Now that Tyler's gone. <laughs> <laughs> let's, uh, let's get ourselves into a little bit of a thing that we call Out Now Feedback. Feedback, feedback. 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 Thank you. Yep. This is this is where we go over the various questions on our Facebook page, Facebook.com/slash/podcast. We asked a number of questions uh, to the listeners for them to give us answers, and they gave us answers, and they gave us also questions that we can answer as well. Feel free to answer, Tyler. Oh, Tyler's not on right now. Uh, <laughs> Good one. <laughs> the question, the first question here is, what are your favorite movies about the making of a movie? Todd has Ed Wood. Dolomite is my name. Chris has One Cut. Of the Dead and Tropic Thunder. Friend of the show, Jim Dietz, has uh, Living in Oblivion, American Movie, Burden of Dreams, Hearts of Darkness, Lost Soul, Lost in La Mancha, and Jodorowsky's Dune. Jodorowsky? Jodorowsky? You got it. A lot of yeah. good, good pop. What are the picks there? Yeah. Irene has Bowfinger, uh, Argo, and King Kong. Nice. Uh, Christine, old friend. Uh, says I can tell you what movie. <laughs> I can tell you what movie. <laughs> Wait, what's the restand for? Regarding. Regarding. Thank you. Yeah, my brain's not working now that I'm not at work. Uh, I can tell you what movie regarding making of a movie I practically fell asleep in. Hail Caesar, and it probably doesn't count, but <laughs> we can talk about the making of the of the Neville Sinclair movie in The Rocketeer. Oh my prince, what would you drink of my lips as deeply? Uh, Crash me every time. 
Thanks, Christine. Sorry that I butchered that so badly. Uh, <laughs> Tyler has the Blair Witch Project. <laughs> Any favorite films about the making of other films? Um, yeah, Black Dynamite. Black it's Dynamite. Not, it's not really a. Um, it's not really making of a movie, but you know, you see a lot of the. Uh, you see a lot of the the movie making in there. Sure. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah, Ed Wood's a good. Ed Wood is a good one. Yeah. yeah. Trying to have is pretty great, but also so is a. Uh, uh, um, Martin Lando. Yes. Yeah. The late Martin Lando. All right, next question we have here. What's your favorite contemporary, let's say after 1990, black and white film? Mm-hmm. Todd, once again, adds Ed Wood. Uh, Clerks, Sin City, The Man Who Wasn't There. Chris has, ooh, all horror for me, darling, The Lighthouse, and A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night. Awesome <laughs> film. Also, Tetsuo Iron Man, as I first saw it in the 90s. Mm-hmm. Irene writes, good night and good luck. And Tyler writes, Mad Max Black and Chrome edition, if that counts. That would be the black and white. Sure. Mad Max Fury Road. Any favorite black and white movies? Mm. Uh, I'm going to say one that Aaron has told me to watch, but I haven't seen it. It's called Ida. (laughs) Watch Ida and Cold War. (laughs) And Cold War. It burns my head every time. I'm like, how long is it? 88 minutes. If that's a question on Jeopardy, I'm going to get it right. Uh (laughs) What about you? I mean, now that you mentioned it, yeah, Ida and Cold War are excellent movies. (laughs) Yes, exactly. The the director's follow-up, right? Yeah. Yeah, Cold also, War. Also, like 90-ish minutes. Both of them Oscar-nominated. Or did yeah. they? Did one of them win? Both of them... Oh, no, because Roma won that year. But it was right behind it. Yeah, yeah. Because I was like, I think Cold War may have won, but perhaps not. It was, it was up for that and Best Director, which is impressive for a small film like Cold War. That's how yeah. good it is, by the way. <laughs> so. Is that one in uh, 4x3? Or... Yes, they're both... Yeah, they're both um, 4x3 films. Yeah, okay. Well... If you think of anything else, feel free to shout it out. Uh, the next question is, what are your favorite performances featuring actors starring as real famous actors? Chris has Robert Downey in Chaplin. Uh, Todd Liebenau has Martin Landau as Bela Lugosi in Edward. Jim Carrey as Andy Kaufman in Man on the Moon. Uh, Kate Blanchett as Katherine Hepburn in The Aviator. Willem Dafoe as Max Schreck, sort of, in Shadow of the Vampire. Uh, Tony writes... Excluding Mank, mine are Martin Landau as Bela Lugosi and Ed Wood, uh, Christian McKay as Orson Welles and me and Orson Welles, David Bradley as William Hartnell uh, in An Adventure in Space and Time, uh, Eddie Murphy as Rudy Ray Moore in Dolomite is My Name, and Lassie Tyler adds, I still love how Tarantino was able to portray Sharon Tate as a metaphorical spirit of the 60s. Robbie brings that essence alive to perfection. A lot of good answers here. Well, still. A lot of great answers, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, we mentioned already a number of times, but Ed Wood again. I mean, Martin Landau as Bela yeah. Lugosi is a wonderful performance. Um, trying to think of others that weren't set already. I mean, they, um, mm-hmm. I don't know, The Aviator has a lot of good ones. You have, like, Jude Law for a minute as Errol, Errol Flynn in The Aviator, and that's a fun one. Um, no, a lot of good ones out there, for sure. A lot of good ones. Uh, the person that I'd add is, uh, who's our friend from Saturday Night Live who plays Barry? Oh, Bill, Bill, Bill Hader. Bill Hader as uh, Andy Warhol, Men in Black 3. <laughs> Are you trying to blow my cover here? Right. Okay. Uh, what's your favorite Orson Welles film? Uh, Tony writes F for Fake. Chris writes Casino Royale. And Tyler writes Touch of Evil. Uh, I mean, it's hard to not say Kane for me because I really do think Kane is 
spectacular, but I mean, yeah, Kane, okay, the third man is, I mean, it's not, it's, he's in it. It's not a Orson Welles film necessarily, but I do, that's one of my favorite is movies he also. the second or third man? He's the fifth man, actually. Oh, whoa, plot twist. Yeah, in the sequel, uh, Kadeem Hardison plays the sixth man. Who would have thought that there that's was a like good a joke. sequel? Yeah, <laughs> Come on, like, that's a good joke. Who would have thought that there was a sequel like 30 years later? <laughs> um, well, Orson Welles, I'm going to say that uh, his favorite, or the, the, my favorite Orson Welles film is uh, the Simpsons adaptation of, of Citizen Kane um, with Bobo. Yeah, I mean, uh, you've seen like half the movie if you've watched The Simpsons. So. <laughs> every, every time I watch that episode, I think of that because you've said that to me before. Like every time I've seen that, uh, I watch that episode, I'm like, Aaron is probably right that I'm, I'm probably going to get a lot of it. Yeah, because it's not just that. There's so like so many of like the first three seasons have Citizen Kane references. It's hilarious. <laughs> They also have a lot of other movie and literary Godfather references. Godfather is the other one. Is, it's it's yeah, Game and Godfather are like the most represented in all of the Simpsons. Right. Of all movies, those two. So it's like, you know, if you grew up watching The Simpsons, you're going to be like, man, these people stole ideas from The Simpsons. Um, the, next, or the next question is, what are, your, what are some of your favorite moments from David Fincher film? Chris has The Sloth in Seven, also the final scene, The Cab Ride in the Game, and Oh, The Dog in Alien 3. Uh, Tyler has still loved the mid-film reveal in Gone Girl. Favorite moments from David Fincher films. Mm-hmm. I I really love the the um, the rainy chase scene in Seven. Yes, that's an excellent scene. Brad Pitt actually breaks his hand, mm-hmm. or cuts his hand and breaks it. Um, there is a the the sequence. There's I mean there's a lot in Zodiac, but there's a sequence. Oh, oh yeah, my my goes to Zodiac too. <laughs> is it the basement scene? It's that one, but that's that's like uh, that's, that's already creepy in itself, which uh-huh. is good. Like, it brings good atmosphere, but the Zodiac scene that I like a lot, which isn't even, like, my favorite because it's so hard to watch, is the one of the murders uh, yeah. at the lake. Yeah, the and lake it's one. it's yeah. so hard to watch because somebody said this to me before once where they were like, the reason, why, the, the reason why they think that the murder scenes are so difficult in that movie is because there's not, there's not many – there's nothing else in that movie except for talking, and then when the murder scenes come up, it really takes you – not by surprise, but it really, like – it's, it's very so matter much. of fact. Yeah. It's, it's especially that lake one because it's broad well, daylight. There's no like warning to it. It just starts right. happening. But it's <laughs> also that it takes a long time. It, I, yeah. I, I, some, when I I've told this to you before, when I rewatch it these days, I tend to fast forward through that one because it's such a long sequence. Mm-hmm. But it's so like it's deliberate, and he does such a good thing. But also the other scene that I really like a lot is the um, when they questioned him, Arthur at, at the mill, and the three cops are there, and they're just like asking him these questions. And he's just like, well, those those knives were for cutting chicken. Like, what are you talking about? We didn't ask you about any knives. Uh, so anyway, a lot of good stuff in Zodiac. Um, There's, I, I mean, I could keep listing things, but I mean, I, I I do, you know, really love Fight Club, and there is a number of sequences in that movie. But there's there's one where Edward Norton's trying to tr- track down Tyler Durden. And it takes it's like a montage of him like flying all over the place and the the music by the Chemical Brothers is just fantastic and there's just a lot of great like scenes that build up to this realization that he eventually has about what's actually going on that I think is pretty fantastic. Yeah. I mean the other thing is also the social network, right? I mean you and I uh-huh. have this as like one of our favorite movie from like the twenty tens. Yeah. Um Yes, obviously the Eduardo stock scene. Um but then I think even before that, there's like a scene where uh, it's when Eduardo calls Mark and Mark is already in Palo Alto and they're having an exchange of like you kind of get the feeling that 
Mark, you're you're in the cool club now, and he doesn't want to leave. It's like it's like yeah, this is Fincher's really good at, at everything, and you know I wouldn't be surprised if he if he did also ninety takes of all those. <laughs> sure. Yeah. All right. Um, next question: What are some great films about writers? Chris writes Misery and The Shining. Todd has Barton Fink, Adaptation, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, and Trumbo. Mm. And Tyler has Capote. Mm. Uh, Barton Fink comes to mind immediately. Uh, another film is Wonder Boys, the Michael Douglas film ah. um, that literally just came to Blu-ray like this past week because it's sitting on my table right now. Yeah. <laughs> so. I love I love that DVD cover where Michael Douglas like his glasses are half of his face. He's wearing like a red scarf or whatever. Yeah, he looks like if like Scrooge had a nice day and, <laughs> yes. and, he, and he took a picture. <laughs> <laughs> if you photoshopped like, a, a candle in there. Yeah, uh, it'd be perfect. It'd be like, yeah, yeah the happiest day that Scrooge had. Yeah. <laughs> Any, any I can't really writers? think of anything offhand uh, about writers, but yeah, yeah. All right. Well, the next question is: You have to teach. Whoop, my computer went to sleep on me. Uh, <laughs> you have to teach someone about golden age Hollywood films, 30s and 40s. Uh, what is the film you choose for this? Todd has. That's a tough one. The first films that come to mind were Duck Soup, uh, Footlight Parade, and King Kong. And Tyler writes Casablanca, Wizard of Oz, and Gone with the Wind. Another movie that Simpsons references a lot. It's Gone in the Wind. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, yeah, go ahead. I mean, it's Casablanca and Wizard of Oz are pretty strong examples. Like, yeah. how do you teach somebody about films? <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, when I read this question because you wrote it, uh, it was like, well, am I teaching them like as an introduction to movies or about like film and how they did something in it? Because Wizard of Oz is fantastic for that. You know, one of the things that they did there where the black and white and the color was they just painted everything. They, they didn't even do it in. They did it in camera. Um, and it's pretty great. I was like, wow, that's a really clever way to, to think about it. You know what I mean? Um, and then I just love Casablanca as like a movie because it takes place in like one location. And, you know, there's a lot of really good side characters in it. Yeah. I, again, I, I think Casablanca has so much going for it as far as everything you kind of to an extent because it's still a it's a black and white film that doesn't rely on in much more ingenuity as far as effects are concerned although there's you can argue <laughs> some of that i mean it's there's there's a ton there though that you can just learn about that period of time right um anyway let's move on now let's get to some questions we have here this first one's from jim deets friend of the show I'm interested to hear what you thought of the different actors' takes on these historical characters. I was especially impressed by Arliss Howard as Louis B. Mayer, and whether we should now get a spinoff of sorts about Manx brother Joe. Uh, this, so this is what I was referring to as far as getting yeah. a chance to talk about these actors a little bit more, because I do think it's a well-acted film. Of course. Um, and I, I do think that I think Gary Oldman is having a lot of fun um, as Manx, obviously, um, getting to <laughs> getting to play a character who's a drunk and do a bunch of drunk things and make that work for him and still be like witty and whatnot i think is impressive it's uh, almost as if he's like an oscar-winning actor i know exactly right. um i do tyler mentioned this too but arliss howard as louis b mayor i do think is a very fun performance because of what you said abe i mean he's 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 very dumb about things that are not you know pertaining to how can i make money off of this for my studio he's very um, selfish is what he is like he, yeah. he's always looking out for himself and he only really only cares about what he what's going to protect him as like his image right and that's it, it's not as though we have to like think hard about this character which is what i found fun about it it's like mm-hmm. no we we know who this guy is like immediately you know who he is he's a scumbag and i also think uh, tom purefoy who plays um 
uh, Joe Manko, Joseph Manko, it's uh, another <laughs> strong filmmaker in his own right. Um, I do think that's a good performance too. And I really like that, that there's a, only a, so many scenes, but there's one where he and like Mank has just written Kane and Joseph has just re- read it and, you know, eventually does him. It's like his, his greatest thing. But I do like, there's a lot of dialogue exchange between them right. that is both like, it's both angry as far as like, you can't do this because of the Hearst factor, but also I'm come mending you on your effort here like there's a lot of stuff there where it just makes me think this is a good solid performance also like this really works yeah i mean i think those solid performances all around like what you said there from everybody and i think that's again to uh is it joe yeah yeah joe and also you know david um both having control of these aspects of the film so when i think about like the the uh to jim's question of like how i think about side characters and maybe moving into an, a spinoff of its own. Maybe like I'm not huge on spinoffs just because sometimes yeah. I think it, it, it doesn't really work as much because the person isn't as interesting. Like the reason why I think this one works and this is not to say that Jim isn't correct. It's just more that I, I like the way that this works because it's actually not about these characters it's about the time, the, the, the time. And also like what you're saying in the review, the overarching thing is who wrote citizen Kane. You know what I mean? So it's not specifically about like, hey, by the way, there was the Depression, the Great Depression, and there's also this California um, governor's race, or is it mayor's race? I think it's a governor's race. But it, it's more about that than it yeah, is about like – Yeah, the guy's like, the race. Yeah, it's, yeah it's, it's not so much about like, well, the, the drunkenness of, of uh, Herman Mank, uh, right? So when I think about some of these spinoffs, I think some of them will work, but it has to be about something rather than about the character because – yeah, we we talked about uh, Arliss, and he's great as John Henry in Moneyball. He, yeah, he shows up yeah. for like one scene, and the real John Henry wouldn't talk that way, but still, it's a movie, so I liked it. Um, but still, you know, uh, there's a lot of really because even Tyler said a, a really uh, interesting thing about having more with um, uh, Hearst, William Randolph Hearst. And Hearst is an interesting character, but also he's a really strange guy, you know. So yeah. like I really wouldn't know if I would watch like an hour and a half or like two hours of William Hearst and figure out that he, you know, basically had a uh, a monopoly on on the publishing business and I mean, that the, the he film made his money that way. The film you'd make it about it'd be Marion Davies, and I think uh, Amanda Seyfried is also very good in this movie. She is uh, excellent. I, I didn't say that enough about her. We we didn't really talk about her as much, but she's super charming in this movie. But I mean, there's been Basically, I mean, Tyler mentioned the cat's meow. Like, there's been movies pretty much about her already. And, I mean, she was a Hollywood, like, star. I mean, there's a lot about her already. Um, at the same time, that relationship she has with Hearst, that would be the window you'd take to this, you know, sure. weird guy. Because you don't make a movie about her specifically. You'd make it about, you know, the people around him, which they've done, essentially, by making Citizen Kane and Mank, among other things. Right. Um, so, I mean, that, like, that's, that'd be the interesting gateway there. And also, man, we haven't mentioned Wells very much in the movie that's about his movie, but Tom Burke as Orson Wells, I think is quite good because I think what he does right is beyond, like, getting the, the you know, the cadence down of Wells' very specific voice. Yeah, I was going to say, um, that, that was pretty spot on. I like that he's not overwhelming the film because Orson Wells is, you know, he's a very imposing figure to begin with. So the fact that he's only in so much of the movie and, like, the scenes he's in with Mank don't like just suddenly like make the whole film about a very specific thing. I think that's commendable. I think that's really good on both his part and, and Fincher's part as far as how to balance somebody that has such, you know, gravitas attached to him already. Sure. And you know, this is where I'll, I'll uh, chime in for, for Tyler. I mean, I think that's kind of where the film uh, makes its decision, right? This isn't a Norson Wells movie. It's a, it's a, a Herman Mank 
movie, right? I keep on saying Mank, but it's a whole entire name is like Mankiewicz, right? Yeah, but it's what's so like, Mank. Yeah, <laughs> her Mank. Uh, but in any case, the, the again, where Tyler would say is like, well, you know, it's it's definitely leaning on one side of the story versus the other side. So I definitely see that point of view. Um, but I would agree with you that even Orson Welles' character, he comes up with the way that he says like, you know. Uh, he says like two things in Spanish. I was like, that's exactly how he would say it. <laughs> um, but still, I think when you take a step back, you're like, you know, the, if he was 24 at this time, you know, boy genius, whatever the case is, it's like, I don't know many 24 year olds that act that way. So I think it's a different time. People act. And all. I, I hear what you're saying. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm not right. saying that they're going to like have a house party. It's just more like, <laughs> you know, he, he definitely looks like he's like 30 something in the movie. So in any case, uh, Tyler asks, uh, can you guys speculate on some potential industry reactions to the HBO Max w- Warner Brothers news? Aaron, do you want to go into this? Yeah, so Warner Brothers announced something pretty game-changing this week. Um, obviously, movies have been delayed often throughout this year because of the pandemic. And with that in mind, there's been a lot of films that have went straight to streaming and others that have been pushed to you know different release dates or have been opened internationally but have to you know wait a little bit of time if they can open theatrically here, among other things. So... Warner Brothers' reaction to this after, you know, pushing uh, Wonder Woman around, among other things, um, with, the, you know, on top of the fact that Wonder, Bro- or, sorry, that Wonder Woman's going to be available on HBO Max on Christmas Day, that's opened up to the entire 2021 slate of films that they have. So films such as Dune, um, King uh, Godzilla vs. Kong, uh, In the Heights, the Matrix, the fourth Matrix movie, mm-hmm. everything that they had that was a potentially going to be in theaters in 2021 is now going to go straight to HBO max and theaters at the same time mm-hmm. to, um, to go on top of that. It will be on HBO. Each of these films will be on HBO max for 30 days before they go off. Right. Um, and then obviously theaters is where it's available. And, uh, you know, that's a whole different subject as far as whether or not people are going to theaters. Um, so regardless, yeah, that's huge news as far as a major studio that's taking all of their films and putting them to on a streaming service at no extra cost, no less uh, mm-hmm. beyond the purchase of the streaming service. I don't know what the impact of this is going to be, uh, partly because we don't know what society is going to be like in 2021. Obviously, you know, things are haven't changed very much at all, if not getting worse. Um, but with the you know possibility of a vaccine, even then, that's not going to just instantly change everything. So we right. just don't know what the atmosphere is going to be like out there. So, you know, WB, like they're not politicians. They're, they're not signing something on everyone's forehead that says well, we're definitely going to you know, do this. I mean, it makes you think differently. <laughs> sure. But, you know, the fact is they could change this. This could something like, you know, maybe halfway through the year, they're like, all right, things are getting better and we'll put movies off on whatever. But that, you know, right as of right now, I don't know what's going to happen, but that's what their plan is. And as far as how the industry is going to react to it. I don't, I don't know. Um, Disney obviously has Disney Plus, and they can put movies on there if they want to, if that's their decision to. Universal has what Peacock, I guess, would be their place, and I know Paramount. Sure. I know CBS All Access is turning into Paramount Plus, so that'll be like a resource for them as Paramount well. Paramount Plus. Okay. Yeah, they've just given. I mean, because it just, I think it makes sense. I mean, it no, might no, no. Crazy, I just but... like how everyone's like either uh, adding plus or max to their <laughs> yeah <but> max I... <laughs> power um the right way the wrong way the max power way it's wrong way it's faster <laughs> hey um... why did they make max power a doofus <laughs> i yeah i mean i i get the logic of it it's certainly extreme <laughs> but um is this like the i guess there's the other question like is this the, is this the end of theaters as we know it no it won't be um 
regardless of when the pandemic actually subsides and when things are safer to happen, people by default want to have that kind of communal experience. And what the amount of films that go to theaters, the types of films that go to theaters may evolve, which has been happening already anyway. Um, but there's still going to be a world where people are like, I need to get out and see this in a movie theater. That's just how things are going to be eventually. Um, so it's, we, things are already heading in a certain direction as it was. The pandemic just sped up things tremendously. So I, I, I'll be curious where it goes from there, given the unprecedented times that we're in. But for now, it's just kind of a wait and see. Right. You know, one of the favorite things to do is, um, go to a movie theater like on a Friday or a Thursday and sit down and watch a movie um, in a darkened room with, with good picture and good sound. Um, that doesn't change. You know, that's not, that still is my favorite way to consume a movie, uh, whether that's going to be like a, in a mega multiplex or whether it's in like a two screen theater. Right. Um, that is still probably the way that I would tell you to, to watch a movie where, when it's safe, where it's safe. Mm-hmm. As far as like where this goes, like I, it's been coming for a while. You and I have actually had on and off discussions about this either on the podcast or, or off the podcast. You know, we talked about it just probably two weeks ago where we there was a question that was asked and we were basically saying it's probably going to go to streaming and theaters. And this is exactly what's happening. Right. Is it that this also speaks about the streaming wars again, like with HBO Max? I know the HBO Max was kind of it came and it was like, hey, by the way, our biggest play here is that we're going to have Snyder's cut of um Justice of uh, Justice League, and that's taken a while now, and it's it's, it's going to be released in four parts over 2021. But what they're doing here is like, if if their thought was let's try and monopolize the game, then that's different from, you know, uh, that's like a clever play, and it's like let's just release everything and and have it have a monopoly for like 30 days at a time for people to watch our movies. But the thing I think about is like safety, and this is a great safety measure, you know. I want to see these movies too, and I want to see them in nice big screens with uh, good sound. But at the same time, it's just not safe. And at the same time, I don't think that people are going to be as interested in a movie that was slated to come out in 2020 that's going to be released in 2022 because things will keep on continuously progressing in terms of projects and uh, in terms of other things. Movie studios are partners with these movie theaters, right? And so part of the cut goes to the movie theater, part of the cut goes to the movie uh, production studio. And with all that being said, like, am I going to be upset that, you know, like the five theaters that are around me that are 20 screens each, one of them is going to close? Not necessarily. And that's not me being callous to the fact that people will lose their jobs. It's more that I don't necessarily think that having, like what we discussed earlier, having having like one movie play in like 21 screens is my favorite thing in the world. You know what I mean? Like I do like to see smaller movies. And I'm not saying that as like a, a movie snob. I'm just saying that, you know, some of these movie screenings, like they just don't carry the movies that I want to see all the time. And so if I can see Justice League at home, or I'm sorry, not Justice League, but if I can see Wonder Woman 84 at home in a safe environment um, and still experience it in such a way that allows me to enjoy the movie, then that's a win-win. And when it is safe and when it gets re-released in theaters, am I going to go see that too? Yeah, sure. All right. Well. I think we've had a, some good <laughs> thoughts on, on, on where this is all going, given that we can only say so much, but like, right. and you know, even optimism is like, well, yeah, we want to be optimistic. <laughs> it's like, yeah, like, totally. Yeah. I mean, as far as like moving and shaking goes, this is a big mover and shaker. Mm-hmm. But like what Aaron said, it, 
it's it's not as if they said we're we're forever gonna do this, you know. Yeah. So we'll see what happens, you know, come fall twenty twenty one, um, when things maybe hopefully have have slowed and and things become quote unquote more normal. But at the same time, you live in such a digital world that you're able to watch these things. You should be excited that you can watch them at, at in your home if you don't want to go travel out to a theater. Yeah. So. Uh, thank you, Tyler, for that question. A uh, good question. Yeah, thank, good question. Thanks to all the thanks to all the listeners for their answers and questions on the uh, on the podcast. Here, we're always good to get feedback. Um, feedback with all, feedback. thank you. With all that in mind, that is going to wrap it up for this week's episode of Fountain Out There and Aid. You can find more of my work, my personal blog, thecodezeke.com. Everything I do ends up over there. I'm also writing at wisesblue.com. Look for my upcoming 4K review of the Tenet release, and um, I'm on Twitter at Aaron's PS4. Wow, that's, that's already being released. And December fifteenth, it is. Yeah. Wow. I'll finally be able to see it. Yeah, then we can talk about it. Yeah, I'll, I'll watch it on my uh, my iPad. As it was meant. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> We're gonna uh, you can find more you. fun stuff over at my Instagram, abe.mua, and twitter.com slash walrusmoose. Hashtag, <laughs> I'm tired of your platonic affairs. <laughs> Which I thought was a hilarious line. Uh, once again, thanks to Tyler Smith for joining Thank us. You, you, can find, you can find his work over at Battleship Retention. And you can find all the other episodes of this podcast over on iTunes, Audioboom, Spotify, and Stitcher. HHWD, SoundCloud, and Podomatic. Feel free to email us at outnowpodcast at gmail.com. Send us questions right on our Facebook wall, facebook.com slash outnowpodcast. Or you can send us tweets at twitter.com slash outnow underscore podcast. And be sure to visit our Instagram page, instagram.com slash underscore podcast as well. It totally manks. Um, <laughs> yeah. That's going to do it for this week's episode. <laughs> is that a thing? <laughs> yeah, totally makes. Okay. Um, that's, that is going to do it for this week's episode. Uh, stay tuned for next week's show, which um, Sound of Metal, I know, is going to be a big one. Sound on of Metal, there. and also you mentioned Nomadland, which would be some pretty great movies to, to talk about. Um, I think Nomadland depends on whether I can actually see it. Yeah, so we'll, we'll see what we can do there. But yeah, just know that there's stuff that's available. Um, in some markets. I know Sentimental's right on Prime, so that's easy to watch yeah. uh, right now. But yeah, until next time, so long. And goodbye. director of real redemption he's one he's one i i messed, uh-huh. up. I, I messed up how i spelled the thing <laughs> i'm like what yeah i'm waiting for the pun on bank I, I made a mistake i made a mistake on the on the spelling <laughs>